Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Just realized we never checked this, which almost always spells disaster for us. Every time I think, ah, we're good. Oh, we're good. All right. <laughs> never mind. All right. Well, my name is Cameron. Uh, man, it is, it is an honor to be with y'all. Um, I, uh, I think Josh mentioned it a, a week or two ago, maybe last week, but I, I've actually been um, out of town for the last two Sundays. Uh, we were gone for two weeks, my family on family vacation, um, which is awesome. And uh, I want to say two, two things. One, that it, it's not just because I was out of town that Josh was preaching. Um, it's, just, it's just a deep value of mine and I hope for our whole community that um, we as a church are not dependent on any one person to, re- to receive preaching and to receive the word. Um, I, I don't pretend that I'm some like master preacher or anything like that, so I don't think we're in fear of, of that kind of thing, like cult of personality. I don't think I'm that good, to be honest with you. Uh, but even still, like familiarity and, and routine can, can tend over time to, to just create a dependence. Like that's, that's the person we listen to, and I don't want that. So there, there's a reason why at least hopefully once a month there, there's other preachers, including Josh most regularly, but hope for other people from our community too, um, to, to get up here and to exposit the word to you because um, we think it's important. We're here for God's word, not for any one personality or individual. We do think biblically that the elders of the church are the ones who you should most often hear from, but we think non-elders should be up here as well and be trained and, and learn to do it. So we hope over time you'll hear from more and more people here uh, as part of our community. That's a goal of ours. Um, but secondly, the other thing I wanted to say was it, so it's weird wearing shorts on stage. Especially, these are kind of my tight shorts. So, <clears throat> looking good. Looking good. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, it's hot. So, the tight shorts today. Um, but the other thing I was going to say was it was just such a joy um, to be away, and we tuned in on the live stream, you know, while, while we were out of town, to see this church happening without me. Um, I was so proud to see, like, A, you know, it's, I, I don't know if everyone knows, it, I'm the only full-time staff here at the church right now, so for, for you all, a lot of you volunteers to step up to make it happen, Josh, who, who, who is part-time here, but he also has another half-time job he has to work that takes a lot of time. For him to put his energy in and for the volunteers to step up, I, I was just so proud. It's like, that is healthy and that is so good. And beyond that, just how sweet our community is. Like, I, I just love you all and I love the, the worship teams and I love hearing you all sing even through a computer screen. I, I was just in, incredibly blessed. Um, so, uh, 
I, I think this is really special, especially like a year plus into a new church plant to be able to do that. Um, so thank you all, and, and thanks for being who you are. Um, but today we're, we're continuing in our series, uh, Feeling and Praying with the Psalms. We've, we've been doing this now for um, a while. I think this is the fifth, fifth week, I think. Um, and today we're going to look at Psalm 23, um, as an example of how to process uh, fear in relationship with God. Fear. Um, so uh, I'll just preface this. In their book, Why Emotions Matter, I, I've referenced this a couple times, but I, here's, a, here's a long quote for you. I think so, says it better than I would have if I had tried to recreate this. Tristan and John Collins write, Fear is a primal emotion. It's something that every animal experiences. As humans, our bodies kick into a kind of animal override when we're afraid. We stop being rational thinkers, capable of strategic future-focused decisions. Instead, we shift into a state of fight, flight, or freeze. Our bodies tense and surge with energy. When fear hits suddenly, we might drop to the ground, run away, or hurt someone without even thinking about it. When it comes on slowly, the discomfort builds until all we can think of is escape. Fear is uncomfortable at best, excruciating at worst, but in spite of its unpleasant nature, fear is undeniably valuable. It's our instinctive warning signal, and it plays a crucial role in keeping us alive. Without a sense of danger, we would repeatedly end up in situations that are genuinely unsafe. We wouldn't have a sense of urgency in emergency situations. Frankly, we might not make it to adulthood without fear. Regardless of how bothersome fear may be at times, we can all be thankful for the way it protects our lives and the lives of those we love. And I also like how succinctly Alistair Groves and Winston Smith put it in their book. They say, fear, whether mild uneasiness or abject terror, has a simple message. Something you value is under threat. Something bad might happen to something you care about, and the future holds potential for loss. So like all the emotions we've been talking about so far, it's not so simple as you know, fear is bad or fear is good. Um, it's, it's nuanced. The Bible itself distinguishes between different kinds of fear. Um, Proverbs 9.10 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, so a healthy fear and reverence for God and its motivating power to stay in right relationship with him is actually the source of all lasting wisdom, so claims the Bible. Um, we could go on with positive examples, but, but there are also many commands. You probably read dozens of commands in the scripture to not fear, right? Do not fear. Either, either don't fear the things that, that aren't worthy of being feared or not to be ruled or governed by your fear. Those are usually the two senses of those commands. So fear is important. Fear is useful. Fear keeps us alive. But fear can also become a crippling, dangerous thing, and it can even lead us into sin. So it's complicated. Um, so I guess I should say, I, I hope it's been obvious. I don't know if we've said this explicitly, but as we've been kind of taking this tack through the Psalms, I hope it's clear that like the principles we've, we've, we've taken from each aren't necessarily contained to that one emotion. So we looked at Psalm, what was it, 109, talking about anger, like serious anger. Well, the principle there was bring whatever it is you're feeling and cast it at the feet of God. And that doesn't just have to do with anger. You could do that with your fear. You could do that with your anxiety. You could do that with this or that. 
Um, but that, that psalm happened to be an example of, of anger. Um, these aren't necessarily like only applicable to the, to the emotion that the psalmist was dealing with at the time. Um, and, but the, today's psalm is going to be a little bit different than the, one that we've, the ones we looked at before. Um, because uh, in this psalm, the focus isn't on confessing our fears to God, though you can do that, you should do that. God, I'm afraid of this. Help me. Help me navigate this. That is worthy and good and right. But instead of confessing our fears to God, you could say that this, this psalm's focus is on confessing our God to our fears. Here, David deals with his fear by declaring in prayer the privilege and the beauty of having God near him when he's in the face of things he could legitimately fear. And you might be tempted to dis- dismiss this as kind of trite. It's kind of one of those like, oh, yeah, that's nice. Yeah, yeah, talk about God in the face of your fear, whatever. Um, and that's kind of why we started with some of the more scandalous psalms. I didn't want anyone to come into this series thinking there's like, oh, y'all are just going to paper over the hard stuff and not deal with life as it really is. You're going to pretend that things are all easy and whatever. We've wanted to go into some really hard things and some, some things in the psalms that make us really like clinch up and go, is that okay? Um, the, the Psalter is not afraid of those kinds of expressions, nor does it undervalue the ones like we're going to find today in Psalm 23. I just want to be really clear about that. When we dismiss the power of this psalm and ones like it at our own peril, commentator Derek Kidner puts it well. He says, depth and strength underlie the simplicity of this psalm. Its peace is not escape. Its contentment is not complacency. There's readiness to face deep darkness and imminent attack, and the climax reveals a love which homes toward no material goal but to the Lord himself. That's what's going on in Psalm 23. So let's jump into it. Let's look at it. Psalm 23 says, A Psalm of David. David's the author here. We'll read the first three verses. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And the poetic image of a shepherd with sheep, which is a common biblical image, it controls the first verses of this psalm. So who's a shepherd? Some of you may have backgrounds in farming or whatever. You know what it is to, to be a shepherd. Uh, but many of you probably do not. A shepherd is simply one who cares for, who tends, who protects, who leads, who nourishes the sheep. And just for some context, there's a good, some good background. This is from, uh, from scholar John Walton. He says, Sheep in the Levant grazed on the fertile grass produced by rain. In summer and autumn they fed on weeds and stubble left over from harvest. Like camels, sheep can go long periods of time without water and then drink as much as nine liters. Contrast to goats who are quite independent, sheep depend on the shepherd to find pasture and water for them. Shepherds also provide shelter, medication, they aid in birthing. In some, they are, sheep are virtually helpless without the shepherd. Um, so that's the image. David is the sheep, helpless, dependent on the Lord who is serving intimately as his shepherd. This image of God as shepherd, it's, so, it's powerful, it's beautiful if we, if we let ourselves into this world for a minute. It says, 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. This is image of God giving David rest, even forcing him to rest, even when he doesn't know he needs it. He makes him lie down in these green, lush pastures. He can rest where he can eat. He leads David beside still waters. He, gives David, he takes David to the life-giving nourishment of water of an especially peaceful variety. He restores my soul. Soul translates the Hebrew word nefesh, which usually refers to the whole person. Material, we, we, you, for some reason, we've, we've kind of short-circuited this. We think of soul exclusively as like the internal, immaterial part, synonymous with spirit. Usually, sometimes it refers that way, but usually it refers to the whole person, the life of a person, both body, mind, and spirit. This is, God is restoring every part of David holistically here, restoring his whole person. And he leads David in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He leads him on roads and towards destinations of righteousness, goodness, justice, and thus right relationship with God. And all for his name's sake. And the result, the result of this, kind of summed up there at the end of verse 1, I shall not want. Because he knows this is who God is, David can trust his needs will be met. I won't want. I'll be in want of nothing. He seems to be saying there is endless satisfaction to be found in genuinely trusting the shepherding heart of God. Not in the abstract, but for you personally, if you're in Christ, there is satisfaction to be found. If you can actually get yourself to this place of declaring sincerely like David, I understand, I know, I believe, I trust that God is my shepherd. I'll be in want of nothing. And we could just read that, read those three verses, stop there and go, oh, well, yeah, see, that's just a very nice, you know, kind of platitude, kind of papering over the difficulties of the world that you've experienced, that I've experienced. It's not genuine, it's not sincere, that, yeah, we'll see how this holds up when, when trouble comes. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 4 and 5 show us the situation when David wrote this was not everything's fine, everything's great, I'm just cruising along. He says, I, even though, all of this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you're with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Again, shepherd imagery, the rod and the staff. And then he kind of gets off the shepherd thing here. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. And so what David acknowledges here is that there's real reason to fear. We, this has become one of those like so prominent images, the valley of the shadow of death, that it kind of, we risk it losing its power. We risk it losing its power because you've just heard it so many times. It's in Coolio's song, for that matter. Uh, but just let that image weigh on you. He's walking through a valley. A, not, not the high mountains where the presence of God is, but the low valleys, the low places, where the shadow, the cool, dark shadow of death itself is bearing down on him. The low valley where the presence of death suffocates is where David is. It's cooling, it's covering, it's threatening all who pass through this valley. Death is. 
It's chilling. There's evil present. There's evil near him. It's undefined, probably connected to, to the shadow of death or whatever, but there's evil around him. And then we even go on, and, and, and he talks about this table in the presence of enemies. So there's people out to do him harm, people opposed to David near him. He's in the very presence of enemies who would do him harm. So David acknowledges he's living in a world, just as you are today, where real opposition and genuine opportunities to fear are a constant feature. If you are alive today, you are around reason to fear. You're around opposition. You're around death. Death is around the corner. None of us know if we're going to make it to tomorrow. Death is real and its threat is, is present in our lives. You've experienced this. And my question is, when was the last time that you really feared? We all have different stories. We all have different backgrounds. We all have different life circumstances even right now. For some of you, it might have been this morning. Some of you, it might have been years ago when you really felt ah, that crushing fear. It might have been months ago, whatever. When was the last time you really feared? Whenever it was, there's an answer to that. You have experienced deep, crushing fear at some point. And we all fear different things. I know that for me, my name's Cameron. I have a particular upbringing. I have a particular skin color. I have a particular family I was born into, particular country I grew up in, region of the globe I grew up in. And each of these things has contributed to the things that I fear and the things that I don't have to fear. Um, but like all of you, I have experienced my fair share of fears from the small to the big. They might be different from yours, but, but they're there nonetheless. Uh, in high school, nothing scared me more than girls. Just terrified. Hor horribly awkward, sweaty, anytime I talked to any girl my age. Uh, growing up as a kid in Arkansas, uh, tornadoes were a somewhat like regular feature of life in the summers. Like, Tornado Alley is where we lived. So having to go like huddle with my parents under the stairs in this little closet, which was our like tornado safety spot, was like something you just did normally. I learned that's not normal in Portland. One time I was, uh, the first two years I lived here, I was a barista and there was a thunderstorm and it was like everyone from the street crowded into our coffee shop and was like freaking out. Was, Can we turn on the news? Can we turn on the news over a thunderstorm? Like one thunderstorm. It's bizarre. Uh, it's like, it's kind of nice. It feels like home. Um, and tornado, I mean, gosh, tornadoes continue to be terrifying. If you're near a tornado, it's, it's horrifying. Um, I've feared going into job interviews. What if I don't get the job? What if I don't get any job? Susanna and I moved to Portland eight years ago, and uh, we had no jobs and no job prospects. And after about a month, we were sitting there, like, burning through our savings. Like, what are we doing here? Are we going to be able to make it? Are we going to have to just tuck our tails and go back home. I, we didn't know. That was scary. Um, I've feared when loved ones have faced serious health scares. I've feared when uh, loved ones have died. Um, I've feared gun violence before, probably like many of you. Uh, but, but nothing has made me fear quite in the same way as having children has. Um, and that... Honestly, there, there are lots of like, serious, heavy stories. I've shared some before in sermons, but one, one that comes to mind was just the story of my first son, Lane's birth. 
Um, uh, my, my wife had like really high blood pressure, a condition called preeclampsia. We ended up having to be rushed early, a couple weeks early to have labor induced. But like everything just got more complicated as it went and it, we, we noticed like the nurses started getting really quiet like just before Elaine was born and things were getting really intense and they were having to like put her on these meds for the blood pressure but you couldn't do too much because it could affect the baby and then they ended up needing to do an epidural even though we didn't want one just for the blood pressure because it was getting so dangerous. It was just this whole mess. And I just remember those, like, feeling so helpless. I don't know anything about this. I can't help in any meaningful way. I can try to comfort my wife and uh, pray to God that he'll comfort both of us and all this. But you're just helpless. You're like, it, it, is my wife going to survive this? And is my child going to survive this? And he was born, and, uh, but he, he basically, after a few hours, was taken to the ICU, was there for a week. And it was just this horrible, like, I don't know what's going to happen here. There's reason to fear. There's reason to fear. I don't know what your greatest moment of fear is, but you've got one. If you live in this world, you've got one. David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And how does he, what does he do? Why can he fear no evil, even though death is bearing down on him? because he, rem he remembers who God is. It's the good shepherd with the rod and the staff, the one who restores and blesses. He goes on, it's the, it's the, God is the provider who brings the food. You prepare a table, a meal before me. Even though my enemies are right here, you give me something to eat. You anoint my head with oil, which was put on the head to produce like a pleasing smell and to moisturize the skin. Kind of this nice, like, like lush experience. You fill my, my cup, my, my, the, the wine is here to drink. It overflows even. The images of provision, even above the most basic needs, God is, is there for him. And despite what evils and opposition have come to David and are with him now, or will come in the future, David knows you are with me. And notice, even in verse 4, Verse 1 through 3, he, the Lord, he makes me, he restores. Verse 4, it shifts to you are with me. You comfort me. Your rod and staff. You prepare a table. You anoint. It just gets more and more intimate as David reminds himself. Not just that God is, but you are. From the out there to the right here with me. It's not... This psalm is not saying that there is no evil present, and it's not saying that evil can't be feared. It's that God's shepherding presence supersedes that fear and comforts. And this is crucial to understand because this is the difference between the kind of infantilizing, dismissive approach that so many of us are used to. You know, when you, so many times, we've probably all experienced this, when you share a fear with someone, I'm afraid of this, I'm terrified. Someone coming back with, oh, don't worry about it. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. Oh, it's going to work out fine. They don't know if it's going to work out fine. Anytime someone says, it will be fine, they don't know if that's the case or not. They don't know. It's a platitude. That's not what this is. The difference here. This is, this is the difference between those kinds of dismissive approaches that we're used to and the ancient wisdom of, of, of the word of God is that it's not that 
things aren't actually hard. It's that he will be with you through the difficulty. And the Lord, a commentator, Derek Kidner, notes, like, only the Lord can lead a man even through death. All other guides turn back, and the traveler must go alone, but not so with God, who died for you, before you went ahead of you, even to death, and who is raised to new life, who can even walk through that with you. So, Anyone would naturally experience fear walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but David's relationship with God protects him from giving into that fear, from being ruled by that fear. That's the difference. And the result, verse 6, he knows, he reaffirms this in prayer with God and in this, in this poetry here in the psalm, he says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He reaffirms the good things that God has in store for him. And uh, a lot of commentators point out this, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever might be better translated, I will return to the house of the Lord again and again and again and again. I will not be cut off. This does not mean that struggle won't come, opposition won't come, or anything else won't come. It just means that God's goodness and mercy can and will be present even in the midst of them. It's not a guarantee. Like, there was no guarantee that my son wouldn't die in, late, in my wife's labor. Some of you may have families where that's happened. This isn't saying just trust God and, and tragedy will never befall you. If you ever find yourself believing that or thinking that, like, just go, go look at Jesus, the man of sorrows, tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. He's the only one who ever lived perfectly in step with the will of God. And that's not what this is. It's not the struggle doesn't come, but that God's goodness and mercy can and will be present even in the midst of whatever your darkest day is. So as we've done every time with these psalms, we have, we have to note that there is a sense in which, like David, David experienced this. He's, he's writing out of his experience and in his relationship with God, but, but by the Spirit's co-authorship here, um, there, there's a prophetic element in here too that maybe even David wasn't even fully aware of, but that we get to see now on the other side of the cross. Because we now see that the blessings of this psalm are all wrapped up in Jesus. We, we read this differently than, than, a, than an Israelite in, in 300 B.C. would have. Because we know that Jesus is the good shepherd. John 10, 11, Jesus declared, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus is the one who, who, who comes and makes us lie down. He restores our soul. And, and the f ultimate way he does this is by actually taking our place on the cross. The good shepherd saves us from eternal death, from separation with God, from the consequences of our sin. And he offers us, he offers us the presence of God with us for the rest of our lives in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, who will never depart us, even at our lowest moments. And he offers us not only that, not only the presence of God to be with you from the moment you declared your faith in Christ to the end of your life, 
He will never leave or forsake you. But after that, he promises us a coming day of green pastures, of still waters, of restoration, of righteousness, of comfort, of feasting, of oil, of goodness, of mercy, cups overflowing, of dwelling in the house of the Lord endlessly. That's the future hope that we're all promised. The new heavens, the new earth, the new creation, when all things are put right and Jesus reigns from the throne with us, we'll be able to see him in the flesh and all of these things get their final fulfillment. That's the future hope that we have. Romans 8, 31, I'm just, 8, 31 through 39 just sums this all up so powerfully. Now, now having heard this, hear these same themes play out here in the words of Paul. Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes. If that is true, look, if this is just a nice thing we tell ourselves, this is just platitudes. Like, oh, it makes me feel better to think that to, to imagine that there is a God like this. That's just, that's the same thing. That's just platitude. That's just dismissive. But if it really is the case that this God is who he says he is, that he really did send his son, that this is then the case, that nothing can separate you or me from the love of God if we are in Jesus, then that changes everything about the way we encounter fear and struggle and suffering and evil and heartbreak in this world. It's not just a platitude because he is there with you in the midst. He acts a real person his spirit in you to commune with you, to love you through it, to pull you through it. Even if the worst possible outcome comes, he's still there. And even if you die, even death, says Paul, is to fall on you, which it will at some point. Unless we live to see the return of Christ, we're all going to die. And that's sad. (laughs) It's okay to be sad about that. But it's good also Because even that can't separate us from his love because he will raise us up as he raised up Christ and we will actually get to live to see this day, the day that fulfills all this that we just talked about. The worst thing that can happen to us is actually turned into the best thing that will happen to us because that's when we go to meet with the Lord and with all of his people in community and communion forever. That is the secret that, that, that David was tapped into that we hopefully can, can learn to tap into as well. When you face opposition, when you face evil, when you face fear, when you face death, anything that would lead you to fear, we remind ourselves in prayer that he is our shepherd, 
that he is with us, that he has good in store, and it might be really hard today or tomorrow, but maybe, maybe it's in 40 years or whatever, when we die, we come face to face with him, this will happen. Goodness and mercy will follow, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, because he is the good shepherd. Do you want God to be your shepherd in this way? Trust in Christ, the good shepherd. Maybe today, for the first time, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. And all this becomes true for you specifically. And if you've already done that, today I invite you to just reaffirm it, today and tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. It makes a difference. This isn't fantasy. I don't believe this is fantasy. There are days I doubt like anybody, but I don't believe fundamentally this is fantasy. I think this is the deepest, truest thing in the world. And if it is, everything is different. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.